Have you been online at all, man? I don't. I know you don't go on there very much. A little bit because you and Marcus both told me I needed to go check out the Twitter Twitterverse meltdown. So and it's a it's. It's 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 watch it's a meltdown. I mean, it's like watching people go crazy. It's very strange, bro. So we're not supposed to be talking about this today. We're supposed to be talking about education. That's what we're going to talk about. We're yes, we are supposed to be talking about education. Um, but just but it it is it is revealing the need for a definition of educated. How? Because I think, well, because one of the things that Twitter, Twitter is a terrible platform to have conversations because everybody, you know, if, if you ha- if you sit down, you know, and there's nine people um, and one guy is trying to have a conversation with all nine, they can't all talk at once. You can tell who everybody's talking to. And, you know, it's, it's a, there's a, an in-person conversation about this would probably be very useful and helpful because you can have, but if you had two people trying to have a conversation and the other seven people were having side conversations, were commenting on each time each of them spoke, you end up with just a mishmash of confused conversation. And you start to say, well, what is the real position because every Baptist is describing what a Baptist theology quote unquote is um, the, the Baptist position on this, which turns out to be whatever my position is. Right. Um, and then the Presbyterians are all giving the Presbyterian or the theonomic, whatever tribe a person claims they give, they're giving, here's the official position from my tribe. Right. And it's a, um, there's no um, flow. Uh, you, so there's no way to decide what is the what's the real position from the SBC, the we or whatever uh, on Twitter, right? Because one, even the official voice box of the SBC, which recently said something about, um, hey. Let's go gather up all those guns and get rid of them because um, it's for the children. And it, most people from the SBC responding were like, "Go back to Russia, you commie." You know, I mean, like, like. Hey, is we, your mic? The, which mic are you using right now? Are you using your your mic and your headset? Or are you using the one that that's on your table? Because it sounds like your iPhone. Let's find out. I am using my AirPods, and it is because my other one is not plugged in. Ah. Let me, I can go plug it in. Or I can use this one. Is this oh, one better? Wow, what is that one? Probably. Yeah, that was nice. That better at all? Yeah, it was nice. What was this that? This is the new, my, my new computer. I just got a new laptop, and it's got a new mic in it. Is wow. Is it better? That sounds way better than what I was just hearing, yeah. Because <laughs> I just have my I have my AirPods in, and that mic so. sounds rich, at least better than what you have. Nice. So, so are you saying that? Twitter- so, but so Twitter gives the illusion that everybody's voice is equal, right? Right. Because random dude 
pops off and says, well, this is what Baptists think. Um, this is the theonomic position, whatever it is, right? Random dude. Let me challenge that. Has the same platform. Well, but that's what I'm saying. They have the same they have the same platform as anybody else. So then it just becomes which one does the mob interact with? That's, that's where the that's, authority then comes from. I, fair enough. I think that that Twitter and the people who are on Twitter have at least a system in which they try and engage that with, right? Almost like open air preaching where, okay, it's one thing if a professor comes out, even though there's another student going on, they're like, yeah, we know this is a professor. Okay, this person is at least being valid. I think Twitter has its own way of viewing that, which is they look at the person who is popping off and they say, well, he's only got seven views or seven followers or 30 seven followers. followers yeah. yeah, And they're like, he's not that important, so whatever. Versus, okay, this guy's got 13,000 people following him. We should probably pay attention to what he says. And so they they have right. a system in which they go about doing that, but it's not immediate from the platform format if that person is worth listening to. You know what I mean? No, but it's just, has the mob decided to listen to them? I don't... Um, well, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I would love for that to not be the case. I don't spend that much time on Twitter, and that's just what it feels oh. like as somebody that pops pops in, you know, maybe once a month and looks around. Um, the re mm. one of the reasons is because the um, and this is something that I'm sure I could learn, but I don't have the skill of following a Twitter conversation because I don't know who any of the people are. It's hard. I don't know. And so the, right, So there's people that everybody seems to think their opinion is important. And they'll say something. And I look at it and think, but that's kind of an ignorant opinion. Well, hold on. <laughs> Let me jump. This is important. No, no. It's that's a not, terrible way to put it. No, no, it's <laughs> not. It's not a terrible that way to put really it. sounded really arrogant. I don't mean no, no, that. No, it didn't sound arrogant. arrogant what are you talking about? Okay. No, I don't, I don't think so at all. Because people are actually saying that. Who, who I think they're valid to say, yeah, this is a stupid point. We shouldn't pay attention to it. But what I think gains the ground on Twitter is, is the fact that this person is voicing exactly my concerns that I have, even though he might only have seven or 13 followers, right? He's making a right. valid point, and I wouldn't have paid attention to him um, up in any other environment because he probably doesn't dress the right way. He probably doesn't ha carry himself. He probably, I can tell he's not an educated person, right? Now, but I yeah. see just as many educated blue checks making very stupid. So in one sense, the playing field is well, impartial. I was actually talking about the blue, I was talking about the blue check people. Oh, well, yeah. But I already assumed that about the blue <laughs> check people, so I didn't even, yeah. so, I happen to be one so, of those guys. But, so. and, the, and, and this is where, what I, I look at it and I think, how much of this is I don't have the skills because I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter. And I know that's every method of communication takes practice. There's You right. can't just step into a new form of communication and expect to be good at it right away. So I understand some of a lot of this is me as a person who's not online much. Um, I, I will say so, that. Is, so that's some of it. But some of it is like somebody will say, well, here, this is what it was like in the Middle Ages. And you think, no, that's not, it's not true. That's not even close to true. Right. What, where, and like, there's no way to like cite sources. There's no way to, you know, there's no, and and I'm not saying um, that it, that it needs to become an academic forum or something that, that wouldn't be 
that wouldn't make it useful any that that would make it less useful i guess i'd say but this is where the education has to be within the person and we don't have a definition of educated to be able to say this person has an education this person doesn't because a phd doesn't mean anything anymore a master you know a master's degree doesn't mean anything you um i teach at a college doesn't mean anything we but we have to be able so we don't have a definition of educated. I, you know, of, I, I agree with you on that. I do agree with you on that. But when you see someone who is skilled on like this, particularly on Twitter, they repurpose the platform for you and you're like, oh, that's how you use it. Right? Yeah. So like a well, guy so like when, Ron Hensel. When Twitter first launched. Okay. I'm, who, I don't know who that is. We just what, had him on the show. He's a journalist. Um, well, he's not even a journalist. He's a uh, elder at a PCA church in Florida who has the ability and the gift of journalism. I don't. Even, I think he might be a journalist too. But he wrote a great piece. Rachel Den Hollander and her husband came out with this piece against John MacArthur because of this picture that he supposedly took uh, with this other guy who had some sketchy sexual abuse stuff going on, and so they're trying to tie John MacArthur's theological position through bad exit through bad. Um, through a bad understanding, mis- misrepresentation of John MacArthur's position, along with this picture where uh, Bill Gothard, I think it is, Bob Gothard or Bill Gothard, um, and try and attach him to John MacArthur and say, hey, their two worldviews are more aligned than you than you know. Here's a picture and here's the, the sermon that John talked about and here's some other things from John. And so, see, they're, they're exactly the same and this is why you get sexual abuse. That was their flow of argument, and they were laying this out in social media. Well, Ron Hansel just goes through and systematically destroys their whole argument. He did it once in an article, but then he came in against Rachel Denhollander's husband and laid out in a Twitter thread, which is why they're so important, um, point for point just destroyed him. And you were like, whoa, this guy is serious. So when you see somebody who knows how to follow an argument right. and, and lay it out and then use the format to do it, it really is inspiring. I just is my pitch for you to get on Twitter more because <laughs> I think the problem is not necessarily the format as much as it is the people that are on the format. So No, I, I can see the usefulness of it. My it really comes down to um like it just uh, it doesn't feel like anything any it's hard to to measure are you moving the needle at all on twitter are you just shooting into the void but you have to first be there consistently before you can even know and so if it's going to be of of use something tells me <laughs> or if you're going to if i would be of any use on twitter you'd have to be there for a while before you ever even knew that um and i just i don't like the the how quickly the attacks become personal and and all of that. Like, I, yeah, I will say I would I like sitting around drinking beer and talking theology and arguing with people and reading books I disagree with and marking them all up. And I mean, I'm just I just finished um, from Ritual to Romance, like one of the worst books. I, I hate it to, with the depth of my being, and I just finished it. Um, so I like that part. Um. <laughs> you're right that's a, that's a uh, that one i'm almost done with that one it's amazing um i don't even know how, what i got myself into that i'm i just got it 
Something tells me I, though that Jason, that you would say enough stuff on Twitter to move the needle. I I don't know why I feel that way, but I'm sure yeah. that you would find some things to say that yeah. might move the needle a little bit on Twitter. <laughs> but I also think that you know I want to spend my time in creative production, and Twitter feels like it saps the energy, the creative production energy. But that might be because of I don't use it much so when i do and something happens that it you know, okay. feels like yeah no uh, I, I can yeah. see that i can see that so here's 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 how i i think that i'll give you this twitter twitter's platform is primarily a place that gives trolls power yeah there's and and it makes your best argue and your best guys who can debate trolls um, because that's how people are designed to engage. Yeah. I so but it, I think it that's, shapes it shapes the conversation into um a troll bridge. But that is not about the platform as much as it is about the people. If if we saw a train wreck, we're all looking at it. And No, that's true. That's true. And the platform well, just I, says, I, Hey, everybody's looking at the train wreck, you should look too. <laughs> It's 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 basically like let's give a, a um yeah it's a microphone for everyone and and trolls are the first ones they're like microphone for me did you somebody say microphone I'm here for a microphone why yeah. do you think porn is running rampant on that they're my... trying to kill it right oh is it see I didn't even hear about this and is... they will so I don't get it I guess I flagged enough stuff but like people will constantly tell me like there's and if you listen to Twitter if you listen to their conversations, they have a, por- a problem with pornography and they have a problem with child uh, pedophilia and child porn on there. Yeah, it's it's all over. And so they when Twitter, when Just Elon like took over Twitter, posted yes, publicly. Yeah. Oh, so when yeah, Elon okay. took over Twitter, those were so those were the things that they talked about a lot. Like, why did Twitter like, not work harder to remove these things from its platform? And they're still yeah. actively working really hard to remove these things from the platform, but they're having a problem because the platform is designed to say, oh, everybody's looking. So go look at yeah. where everybody's looking. Right. And so but they've worked really hard to, tr- to try and remove those things. But I just think that goes to your point in one sense where it's like, yeah, a person, a, a person. is like a tongue on Twitter. Like James talks about it can will to move the whole body. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And so, but I think I, when I see it used well, I'm really excited. I'm really excited. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm glad there are people out there trying to redeem the Twitter sphere. I mean, I, I think it's important. I think we need Christians that say, oh, here is a, here is a, a, a new electronic, um, electronic conversation creator I, I don't know or it's, it's sort of a electronic public square in a lot of ways yeah that's exactly what um, it is and, yeah and christians need to be out there i just <laughs> i, I want to get you on twitter so bad so okay but you've you've seen the few times that i've gone on twitter how it's gone <laughs> well that's because you really hate baptists and so, <laughs> oh my God, that, that's You're why trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> I'm not. I'm I not love Baptists. My my whole extended family is Baptist, and they're all wonderful. I've Christian heard these before. Really great. I've heard these before. Baptists. I love black people. Okay. Some of my greatest friends are black people. 
<laughs> I've got these, I've got all these wonderful oh, Baptist yeah. cousins and uncles that are ministers, and they faithfully serve the Lord, and I owe them so much. My cousin married um, a black guy. He's in the family. They're basically family to me. <laughs> I'm not letting you out of it. Actually, my daughter was just saying yesterday to me that she she said it's it's hard that more people don't understand that you know no matter what denomination they're in the christians are my family yeah right like that, that's that, it's true that that you just that it's she's like i i just you know you meet other christians you're like oh it's like oh my extended cousins and that i just didn't know i had yet um and uh she said but i've she's come to realize that not everybody has that understanding of the church that this is but you know by faith this is this is our family this is that's right this is our people I hope people know too. That's what we're always fighting for. Like that's part of what, you know, every time, everything that I'm doing is to fight for a unity amongst brethren. That I really want that. That's something that's huge for me. So, and my problem is I got a, I've got a tongue that doesn't always uh, obey that (laughs) mandate. So you're perfect for Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, and that's the other thing is like, you know, I, trying to learn to use the the snark and the sarcasm and you know the jokes and the the comedy and um in a uplifting way is it's hard and it'd be harder if i was on twitter because <laughs> the temptation is always there right like I'm the number you. of times my wife has had to say like hey that one was funny that one was too far right <laughs> <laughs> throughout our marriage i was is a lot and <laughs> i'm surprised man i i, I it's I'm surprised how far you go sometimes. Like I, I really didn't. I've known you for a while now, and I'm like, oh, Jason, he he'll push the edge. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't bother me because I'd be like, ah, oh, that's too far. You know, everybody else is like, oh yeah. my goodness. I'm like, nah. Everybody, everybody goes too far at some point. Everybody you know? goes too far sometimes, and you know, you actually, you know, in the study of comedy for my, you know, day jobs, quote unquote. Um, you actually have to learn part of the skill is learning to n- not let the editor come in until after. And so you, you have to, you, you, you have to push the edges of the imagination. Um, and then, and then you, f- and find the edges of the, find the cliff sometimes by falling off it. You're like, Oh, oops. Yeah. There's the, but you know, my, Martin Luther talks about, uh, um, just living boldly because the forgiveness of God is available. So, so rather than worrying and living in fear and um, knowing that, um, that you're, I mean, you don't set out to sin, but knowing that, that you're going to, you're going to bump in, you know, as a, as a writer, as a comedy writer, you know, um, you, there are times when you go too far and then you just if if it was a sinful too far, you say, "Oh, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross, Amen." And it's, um, but you don't set out to sin, but you know that you've got the you've got the heart for it, and it's it's going to be there. And so, but the way that you find it is not by fearfully trying to set up laws and rules that protect you from your heart's sin. The cross is what protects your you from your heart's sin, mm. and um the and wow. knowing how to take it there quickly is is the way that you you know mature and sanctify and 
Because the law, the law and the rules don't do that anyway. So, do you think though that that that's probably why right now part of the thing that is driving this red pill culture um, is not is the reaction to feminism, but mm-hmm. the reaction to feminism means that we've had a lot of men that haven't been bold, and so because they live in such an effeminate culture, crossing the line is always a form of punishment to a society's. Like, oh, not you, you, you can't, no, not you, sir. You were too masculine, right? You said something, you, you were too bold, right? right? Um, now the, the effeminate side of the culture has uh, permeated our shows to where dad has become the foolish guy in this TV shows. He's become the guy who um, is out of touch with reality and the times and he's become too bold. He says all the things. Why you look stupid, boy? Pull your pants up. Right. Brush your hair. Right. Go get a job. What you doing? No, we don't do that. And that guy right there is like, oh, we call them unks, right? Because they they all unk. He's a little extra, you know. It's like, but he's actually yeah. being bold. He's being forward. He's being honest, and he's really being loving because he's telling somebody the truth. And we've become right. this tone police because we become so effeminate. We have this feminine culture that doesn't allow that type of boldness to really permeate society. And so when we hear it, we're all like, uh, ee. and now this red pill thing is kind of coming in where it's like, be bold, but without repentance. There's no right. repentance at all. Right. So you can and, sit, go ahead. It, well, and you know, when you've got the uncle that talks to you that way, that you know is never going away. That you know if something goes wrong, you can go to their house. You know, right. they, you can sleep on the couch, whatever. Right. That's a different setting for that. Um, the that way of talking. Because um, it's it's that tearing down of the immaturities um, that can be a blessing. You know that 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 young dudes need to hear sometimes. Um, that actually brings about respect in the long run for the men in your life that do that. Right. Um, if they're, if they stick it out, right. Because with the ability to say that comes a responsibility, mm. the authority. So, but we have separated authority and responsibility in our culture because we don't have any concept of, of jurisdiction, which holds authority and responsibility together. Wait, wait, right? wait, so, wait. So, I, I, so you're saying that the uncle who says stuff like that is not just asserting, um, Authority, but he's actually taking responsibility for that. He's taking young responsibility man. For that's his, really yeah, good. for his nieces and nephews, right? So, um, oh, that's really we, good. You can do it well and you can do it poorly, but you we've got our, we've got that responsibility. It's like we have um, there's a, in a couple of weeks. I'm sure he won't mind me telling this story, but a, a younger gentleman, he's not younger anymore, um, is getting married, and and uh, he's a part of our. Bible study. We've done ministry together to the teenagers in our church. He's in his twenties and uh, he's a wonderful young guy. Um, when he was about four years old, um, he their family was sitting in the pew in front of us, and the um, the mom took one of the kids out. The dad took another one of the kids out, and the four year old was was there. And he turned and he started um, harassing his sibling. And I reached forward from my pew to the pew in front of me and picked him up and I stood him next to me and he crossed his arms and was really mad. And we came back, he was like, Ugh. and it, the Mr. Farley just, just like totally 
took like picked me up and carried me away, right? But he's he's my little nephew in the Lord, right? He's it's, it's my responsibility, yeah. And uh, um, and he still remembers it. I had forgotten it until he brought it back up recently. <laughs> but I, because, he was like, I was so mad at you for like months I, when I saw you at church. He's like, and now I look back and I'm like, now I but. I, Jason's a guy I can go to because he's a guy that took that right. saw me as his responsibility, right? That's like, really good. Was willing, um, and so, um, and now what's great is he and I ministered to the teenagers in our church together, right? Um, I don't even know how far apart in age we are, but but he just grew up into a wonderful young Christian man who the teenagers can look up to, even though he's only a couple years older, and but um, and it's a it, it's amazing to see that growth, um, but to know that that's what we're, we're responsible for one another. That's what the, the vows, you know, that's what membership vows and baptismal vows and all those, those, that's those what are, they mean, yeah. that's what they mean, right? They, they mean that we're responsible for one another um, uh, and responsible to care for one another in a familial sort of, you know, aunt and uncle way. It's we have, a, we had a lot of, um, Asian folks in our church in, in California, and they they had a hard time not a, understanding why people don't use family language for one another in English speaking churches. Yeah, there's a lot of African culture. Auntie and too. uncle. Yep. And, yep. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I was like, well, just use start, it. Start using just, it. Just go for it. And so um, it was funny. Because it's, it's theologically accurate, it's culturally difficult for us. Because we have separated the jurisdictions rather than let them overlap. I did something which Sunday. Which is what God, how God designed the designed the world to have the overlapping jurisdictions. But I, I did that Sunday. I saw an older lady who was on her walker walking, and I said, "Hey, mother," and uh, and I realized it because it just is a reflex, and I, and I realized yeah. I was like, "Oh, I'm in the Northwest. They think I'm crazy." <laughs> yeah, but that's it's true. That's like, but. It's and, the, but it's, okay. it's not wrong. I'm just gonna be. Yeah. I'm just gonna say, it and y'all gonna start doing it too. Just like when I started, I started calling Uncle Gary Uncle Gary. That was my line, and that's just <laughs> he's just like a mean uncle who loves you, but he's a mean uncle, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. But, so I don't have a problem with that, Jason. I uh, okay. I'm not gonna go back to the to start talking about theonomy because I'd be there all day because I'm. I'm about up to here with the whole conversation. I haven't said much at all yeah. about the whole thing, but I'm about up to here with the conversation because the way people are talking is like they didn't lost their whole mind. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying people act like they don't know the beginning principles. I'm not gonna. I'm yeah. not gonna. I'm not gonna. We're gonna talk about education. That's what we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about education because I'm talking about the. I'm just, I got my book here, Thomas Watson. Let me just say this. I will say this. If everybody went back and just studied. Their confession and the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger catechism, this wouldn't even be a question. Right? This wouldn't even be a, this wouldn't even, we wouldn't even be talking yeah. about this. But these people have lost their minds. It's like, I, is this, go ahead. Is the 1689 London Baptist confession have the same stuff in it maybe in a yes you most know. of mo, i think on baptism and law i think in covenant they split a little bit they well, a lot but yes okay. for the most part they're pretty yeah. consistent but i'm not even talking about getting in the part that we have a disagreement on i'm just talking about the basics how about this yeah. one who made you 
Right. Game over. We're done. We don't even need to have a conversation. <laughs> right? How about this well, one? And this is... Go ahead. This is where, like, you... If, if studying the confessions in the context of creedal theology, right, historic creedal Christianity... Um, you discover there's there are not that many things we, that denominations disagree on, but we camp on those. We camp on the disagreements um, because we're trying to mark out our territory. I think most of the time. <laughs> that might be a no, 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 no. It. I don't think so. But I, I think I, we try to mark out our territory. I, um, no, Jason. I think it's far more nefarious than that. Um, not nefarious. I think it's it's simpler. Um, I think yeah, nefarious is not the word I'm looking for. I think it's far more disgusting than that. I think we are illiterate. I really do. Yes. No, I agree. I think there is a fundamental illiteracy that is, and that that's what frustrates me about Twitter a lot of the time is somebody just will say, but this is the thing. This is it though. Like, here's the answer. You're like, you can't, you didn't even, you didn't read and understand the previous tweet that you're responding to. You change the subject. You're using the words with different definitions than they used it, right? All of the things that involve reading um, and understanding. And that goes to the conversation that you were having last time, which was, Part of being educated and being literate means to understand the conversation that you are in, the conversation yeah. that has come before you historically and where the direction of the conversation will go after you add your contribution to it. Right. And right. so you're able to speak very clearly about this moment because you have a context to the narrative of the conversation. Where did it start? How did it get to where it currently is right now? Who were the contributors who contributed those things to the conversation? What fed them into this to think this way? This is what we've been trying to do here. And this is a great time to pitch the conference or the event, should I say, the live event in Nashville. This is what we're trying to do is build a whole new cosmology, trying to make people literate, right? In a very, the way that God made man. This is why I was saying going back to the confession because when we go back to the confession, it deals with those first principles. How did this whole thing start? Who's in charge? And then who gets to have control how the conversation moves forward? And and right. so when you say, well, so then when you're answering the question, what is the chief end of man? While that is a theological question, it has a, a civic and family and Duties for everybody involved in every aspect aspect of life. It's not just a religious question. Or should I say you shouldn't make religion or view religion in only a form of uh, separated from the rest of the other governments, civil issues or issues outside of them. Right. Which is the way that that's the way the Enlightenment was able to change the conversation. Oh, wow. Is by taking um so kant was he was he was the systematizer of it he's not the only one that was trying to do it but basically take religious knowledge and separate it into its own category so you had civic you had what was called you know natural knowledge or that involved the civic sphere natural law those sorts of things and separated it from religious knowledge which was revealed and there are two different kinds 
of knowledge. You come to it two different kinds of ways. And this is why when you talk, when somebody says, well, no, I'm a natural law guy, a a Thomist. And you say, well, uh, are you a natural law guy? Are you a Thomist, like a pre-enlightenment Thomist? Because then we're probably on the same page. Or are you a post-enlightenment Thomist? And the the word, when you say natural law, the words nature and law have changed their meaning and become detached from Kant yeah. and become a different sort of thing. Right. So whereas law was, when you say natural law, are you talking descriptive or are you talking prescriptive when it comes to law? Right. And those you, the, and there was a shift and there was a change in the definition of the word law that happened. And then there was a shift and a change from the definition of the word nature. So nature used to mean the um, the the argument was whether it was internal or, or external, but it was the thing that a thing was metaphysically because uh, of its creator, right? God created it and gave it its nature, right? Versus um, the, the later view of nature, which is the things that we discover, right? We, that we go and we find the, the functioning of the, you know, nature as a whole, um, so that it, you know, if we can go and say, well, why does something fall because of gravity? Mm-hmm. Gravity is the natural law that causes it to fall. Um, that's how nature works, right? Versus natural, natural meaning it is, we are using it as the thing God created it to be used as, right? Mm. The natural oh, so use. It has, has telos to it. Yeah, it has a, it has a, it has actually there's Aristotle breaks it down and Aquinas uses the four causes. Um, let's see, this isn't what I prepared to talk about. So I'm sorry. With all four of them. No, that's okay. But I think, <laughs> but it's the, and, and this is why I think that the, the natural law discussion is, is a dumpster fire on Twitter, right? It's a dumpster fire because nobody knows the conversation they're in. Right. They're jumping in, assuming everybody's using natural and law and natural law together as a phrase all the same way. And so they're having these debates. Um, and then I've seen somebody use, say they're a Thomist because they believe in natural law and then use it in a non-Thomistic definition. And, and nobody challenges them because nobody knows that they're not using it in the the. So the four causes that are that have to do with um, what a thing is and what it's for, you know, the metaphysics of a thing. Um, oh, I'm just going to look it up because otherwise I'm just going to get them all wrong. Aristotle, you said? Yeah. The, um, so you've got the material cause, that thing out of which something is made, the efficient cause the source of the objects uh, <clears throat> either. So the, the, the source of the object um, you said that's the official cause the for the, the, the efficient it's cause efficient, the, the, the form. So um, if you had a chair, the efficient cause would be like the factory that made the chair where a thing came, came from and, and who, what, how it got put together. The formal cause, which is, the essence of an object, the, the the form, like in the platonic form sense, although Aristotle disagreed that there was a 
the form outside the object. He believed that the, the, the form was held in the object, right? The object itself held its own form. And that's, that's a question of epistemology, but that was the, so the formal cause, the essence of the object, and then the final cause or the teleological cause, the end goal of the object, what's the object is for, what it's supposed to be used for. Right. And so Aristotle broke, uh, broke down the metaphysic into those four questions um, and so when you could answer those four questions about something, then you could say, I know what it is and what it's for. Um, because so if, if, if you've got say a soccer ball, right. You, um, and the, the, you say, well, what is it? We'll say, well, it's a soccer ball and it's, it's a leather soccer ball, right? That's the material cause. It's what it's made out of. Um, it's, it's leather formed into a sphere and, and blown up with air. Um, and it it came from a factory in Tennessee, right? So mm. it's a, that that's where it came from. Um, that's and, and then what it physically is uh, is a sphere a sphere of leather blown up with with air. Um, the formal cause is the question of well, what makes it a soccer ball? Right? And so then you look at it and you say, well, these are the things that it has to have to have a soccer to, to be a soccer ball versus a basketball, right? And a nihilistic metaphysic says we know it's not a, we know it's a soccer ball because it's not a baseball, it's not a basketball, it's not all these other so things. You know what it's, it's not, not. <laughs> any other kind of ball. So we know what it's not, therefore we know what it is. Um, and uh, but and then the final cause is what is it? How do we know if we're using it right? Right. Well, we play soccer by the rules and we know we're using it right. Right. If you have a soccer ball and somebody takes four of them and balances a table on it and says, well, now it's a table. It's not a soccer ball anymore. Um, you would say, well, you're not really using it properly. That's not what it's for. Now that's a, um, that that's always a situational question, right? Because I've told my kids, Hey, you're using the soccer ball wrong because they're kicking it in the library. They're kicking it in the living room. Hey, that's not what a soccer ball is for, right? Well, they're kicking it, but they're not using it for what it's for. Right? So those are those questions. Um, it's a way of one exercising, exercising your faculties of understanding the nature of a thing, right? So that you can, so the point isn't necessarily can I identify a soccer ball and use it well. The point then becomes when I look at my wife, can I identify what she's what she is and what she's for? Well, right. The point is always the um, to get to the moral science, the prop. So the natural science um, in and of itself doesn't get us to the 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 human aspects right that's why um in the older understanding science was for children and poetry was for adults we flipped it around um but that just has kept us immature the natural sciences um, are supposed to lead to the moral sciences so what once i am good at identifying what a thing is and what it's for then the question is am i using it in a in a virtuous way or in a, am I using it for vice? Am I using it properly? Am I using it well? So the natural use, um, the, the, so for example, the natural use of a wife is servant, servanthood, 
right? God, God looked at Adam and said, he's designed to give gifts. He's designed to protect. He's designed to, uh, to love and care for and, and husband, right? Well, he needs a wife then. He, he, he can't become who he's designed to be without a wife to serve, protect, um, seduce in the good sense of the word, right? Woo, um, impregnate, uh, uh, and bless, give gifts for, right? And this is part of the difference um, in a, a, a Christian understanding. We, we're we not always trying to get it down to its minimum. What's the minimum use of a thing? We're, tra- we're trying to maximize the, the proper use uh, of our, of our neighbors. Right. So we, that's what, that's the difference between uh, a law, a law understanding of virtue and a love understanding of virtue. A law is here's all of the things you can't do. Right. And here's the minimum things you must do. A love understanding of virtue says, okay, what's this, what is this thing? What's it for? How many good uses can I come up with for this thing? Right. It's the, it's the, um, how many uses of the peanut when you a Christian scientists sees a peanut and he doesn't say, um, Oh, I found a, I found a way to monetize the peanut. We're good. Right. He, he says, how many uses can I come up with this good thing that God has given? Well, it's the same with a wife, right? How many ways can I be who I'm supposed to be <laughs> towards this creature that God has put in front of me? How many ways? So you, you don't just deliver flowers once you don't just, Take on take her on one date, and this is the temptation of husbands, right? You you win her, you marry her, and then you think I'm good, I'm done, I accomplished the goal, right? Rather than continually saying, "What is she and what she for, what she for?" She's a reflection of God to me. She's a reflection of the church to the world. She was a reflection of uh, of the the. Uh, life-giving force of the Holy Spirit. She's a reflection of the beautifying desires of God, right? She's a reflection of all of these different things. How do I give her um, the the love, the support, the, the, the things that she needs to be able to accomplish what God made her for? Um, it's a completely different way of approaching reality. Um, and they called it natural law, <laughs> but the words natural and law change their meaning. And so when we talk natural law, we generally mean something different than that. Well, and, and just bringing in from the last conversation, I don't know. I know you got stuff there. I want to get to that, but I just want to bring, point out the fact that, and it seems like the way that we should understand education and the sciences, you had natural law, you had a uh, moral law, a moral, I'm oh, sorry, natural science, Moral science and then the divine sciences, yeah. right? And these were held together. And you, said, and you were talking about how that religion or theology was the queen of the sciences, right? So, it yeah. ha- so this there was this unified form of thinking and understanding, but even the natural side um, was being informed by the moral and the 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 um, divine. So that right, it under- exactly. so that you can have a total understanding of even those four four elements that you just laid out, um, which was material, efficient cause, uh, f- formal cause, and teleological cause, right? And so you have that, but it's being held together by those other sciences as well. Right. Yeah. So so the 
you you ask those questions and if you haven't yet got to the point where you the the poetic resonance of god's creative creative work is a part of your definition of what a thing is you haven't gotten to the depths of what that thing is yet right you're still um you know that i i mean to, to go back to the peanut you've got this incredible plant that grows up um and then it grows these little twisted flowers and then um it be, so because it's not a it's not a seed right and hopefully we've all learned that by now that the peanut is not a nut um that it's a legume but which but it actually bows its head over and the flowers um are are designed as little drills that drill themselves into the ground and then the peanut grows underground right so unless the flower is willing to humble itself it doesn't actually you don't get more peanuts you don't get and you don't get more flowers because the the. Um, Are you trying it, to preach a sermon? Are you trying? I to am, pre- right. Uh, come on now. I, but I but I'm not preaching the sermon, right? This is the the God created a flower that is a sermon to us every season, uh. right? Um, but we get there. We don't. It the, that's not a, the Bible doesn't give us that, right? That's something that we have to learn the poetic language of creation, and we learn that through studying the natural sciences through moving through that to the moral sciences, moving through that to the divine sciences, right? um, And then once we know the divine sciences, it undergirds the natural sciences again, because we understand that God as the creator spoke all of these things, right? Each, every peanut plant is a small story that God has written. Um, And it's a short story Uh, where, you know, just like every day, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And so um, that's, it's, it's a, different understanding of the cosmos um, that we don't, that I don't see many people understanding or, or assuming. Um, So we're tempted away from, we, we, how would I put it? So our gut reaction is not informed by reality. Hold on, hold on. Uh, May 13th, Nashville. <laughs> Go to flfnetwork.com, look under events, sign up. It's going to be awesome. George Grant, David Fowler, Jason Farley, and myself will be there. We're going to build a new biblical cosmology for people. This is fantastic. <laughs> Keep going, Jason. Did, did you see that cool video I sent you that tracks the, the turns of the That was beautiful. Earth? That was beautiful. Wasn't that gorgeous? I just shared it right, right. away. Yeah, I, I just, it's so beautiful. And if, if you were to stand there long enough, you could see it. But we don't have the patience. I, I was just thinking this the other day because I was out late at night uh, and I stopped and I looked up and, um, and, I, was, and I was thinking, if, if it was 400 years ago, I would experience this regularly. You, um, I there. There's a a beautiful, um, a beautiful poem by Robert Frost, uh, stopping stopping in the woods on a snowy evening, and it it's a uh, it. My Robert Frost is out of my car because I just had it. So I. What is he? No, I've got it right here. Of course you do. 
Yeah. Just happened to have just laying around. <laughs> Where is it? I, I was. Um, I hate. I hate. I hate looking things up. I, I want to be able to always just go right here and grab it. But maybe I'm going to fail at that today. Um, but I'll I'll look it up and, and read it. I should just have it memorized. Yeah, I'm a little yeah. ashamed of myself. Yeah, you should. Shame on you. <laughs> I've been looking it up so quick. Um, this is why the Poetry Foundation is so great. They've been doing a really good job of getting all of the, um, of getting poetry accessible and available and searchable. And I love the Poetry Foundation. Um, but it's called "Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening" by Robert Frost. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there's some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. It's a beautiful poem, right? It's just just the wordsmithing is gorgeous, but it's about a man who's riding on his horse and he stops on a snowy uh, December 21st, the darkest evening of the year, right? So um, it's it, it's either December 21st, which is the winter solstice, or it's the, um, the, the new moon of December, which is the darkest evening of the year. So those depending on the, that, the use of that phrase could mean, it's a, but it's, it's a December evening, either on a new moon or on the winter solstice. And he stops and he watches the snowfall. And um, he says, you know, I'm in somebody else's woods um, and I'm stopping and it's quite an experience. Um, and my horse must think it's a little strange to just stop and look up because horses don't have the reflexive power of the image of God that we do. Mm. Right. We as people know exactly why you stop to watch the woods fill up with snow, stop to look up at the sky and reflect. Right. Um, but a horse doesn't. Um, and so he gives the horse shakes his harness bells um, and says, why aren't we, moving we should keep going what don't stop here and um and then he gets to the end uh and and he says um the woods are lovely dark and deep but i have promises to to keep and miles to go before i sleep and then he repeats it and miles to go before i sleep and you realize mm. that there's two meanings to the poem yeah yeah right all of a sudden you go, oh, there's two meanings to this poem. So then you go back and you read it again, which a good poem makes you want to go back and read it again because the last line gives the whole thing a new meaning. And all of a sudden, whose whiz these are, I think I know his house is in the village, though. You realize, oh, he's in God's world, right? God has, this is God's woods, and the church is over in the village, but he's here with me, too. Right, because it's his 
world. So you, there's not, you don't escape God by not being at church. Um, it, he says, but he, but he will not see me stopping here to watch these woods fill up with snow. Right. So he thinks maybe in the darkness, I can get away with something. Right. So now that becomes a question. Can I escape God's judgment? Um, and he says, my little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. And if you know the, the Victorian understanding of the human person as an animal, um, that, that it is animal, vegetable, and spiritual all combined, then when he says this horse, you know that now he's actually talking about the um, – his body versus his spirit. And this is a, that's a Aristotelian Victorian era understanding of the human person. And we still talk about it because if somebody is in a coma, we say they're in a vegetative state or they're a vegetable, right? Because their, their vegetable life is the only thing that's still there. But he's, he's now he's saying that this question is actually cause um, is because there's this tension between your physical body and your spiritual body. That's a distinctly Victorian or late, late golden age Greek understanding. Um, and, but, and he says between the, the woods and frozen Lake, the darkest evening of the year, he gives his harness bells a shake to ask, to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. And you realize he feels and hears the wind blow and it, and he says, no, you can't escape. God's here. The Holy spirit blows through the woods um, and reminds him, you can't just, you can't escape. You can't escape God's eye and you can't escape God's judgment. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And it won't be long before I'm dead is what the last line then ends up meaning, right? I can't, I can't, there isn't a, there isn't a dark wood somewhere where I can go and escape the eye of God and the presence of the Holy spirit. Uh, and eventually I'm going to die and stand before him. And so this setting then becomes a setting that he describes. And then it's a setting that lifts his eye to the more to the need to make sure that he lives a moral life, even in secret. Right. It's a beautiful poem that is doing the, the that's using the natural sciences to guide his eye towards the moral sciences. Right. Um, that's, we should be doing that all of the time because then that there's the, the eventual stop becomes the divine sciences. Now, Robert Frost, you, he's a Unitarian, he lives right in this weird transition as so he's raised in this puritanism that shifts into unitarianism in his in his um uh in his lifetime and so um i i hope that he is somebody that we meet in heaven but it's going to be hard to say he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't teaching Unitarianism, but he went to an Orthodox church that shifted into Unitarianism. Um, so it's a sad, sad state of affairs in the, in the American church. Um, it's, this is when the, 
transcendentalism was birthed out of that Unitarianism. So, um, but he's still got the habits of the habits of mind of the pre-enlightenment Christianity. Um, so he, he's, he's an interesting case because he's kind of got a foot in both um, eras. And at the end of his life, his poetry is more of a modernist style of poetry versus the beginning of his life when it's more Victorian, his life is long and he, he shifts the poetic, he shifts with the poetic tides, but it's a beautiful poem that I think teaches that does what it is that we're talking about. So what do you have on your paper of list of things over there? Cause this is not at all what you were prepped for. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, I mean, I think it, it is though, because it's a, cause you know, what I have written down is the great conversation of the liberal arts. Um, it is the, that's the, you know, we, mm. we talked last week about, um, I got soul a craft of, through yeah, beauty. Yeah. I call this soul craft through beauty chapter. That was the introduction. This is chapter one. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, my, my, I was thinking about, um, you know, habits that the other part of an education is habits trained, habits trained towards goodness, right? So that habits of mind and habits of body and habits of soul that are trained by our education towards goodness. Um, and this is the, that gut reaction about things we we tend to think of that as a passive um as something that's passive we either react some way or we don't right our we we our emotions are not in our control oh yeah um and there's a certain sense in which our emotions aren't in our control directly but they're in the but they are the response of things that are in our control and um and so Part of edu- we talked about the muses last time. Yeah, I got as it written that, down here as the way beauty crafts our soul towards towards truth, but it also tra- crafts our soul towards goodness. Um, the beauty does, but the habits um, that we develop are a major uh, are are central to the. Um, to the control of our emotions, right? If we have a, a lot of bad habits, we have lat we don't have control over our emotions. Um, our emotions end up having control over us. Um, good habits lead towards um, our emotions being under control, but it's because our emotions g- grow out of a particular soil. So this, what's coming to mind to me in this as you're talking is the proverb that a man who commits adultery lacks understanding. Is mm-hmm. that what is that what this is kind of in the same vein? Yeah. So so that we um, because we're not just educating the mind solely. Right. But that's that's part of it. But um, we also are trying to educate. Right. So somebody so somebody that says. Like I've I've never met anybody that is like, oh yeah, man, I committed adultery. And I'm sure glad I did. <laughs> you never meet somebody that's like, boy, I'm that adultery that really worked out well for me. Right? Every everybody you meet 
um, that committed adultery is always like, yeah, ruined my life, ruined everything. I don't, but you think, and when you talk to them and say, how did you get there? Um, it's never like everything was going great. And one day I woke up and said, today I'm going to go commit adultery, right? It's, it's lots of tiny habits that are set that open you up down the road to life destroying sins like adultery. Um, and, but it, because you, because your habits, they teach you, they give you the ability to think your, think through your actions to the consequences, right? Or bad habits make it so that you can't think through your actions to the consequences. So you just jump in um, to whatever, whatever pie is right in front of you without thinking through the actions in what, what it's going to lead to, right? You, you, um, you start in on one end of the Twinkie without thinking what's the, what's on the other end of the Twinkie. Right. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, that's not a good, that that's a bad habit of mind, but it comes from years of bad habits. And so the man that commits adultery lacks understanding. Um, he doesn't usually mean that he doesn't know that adultery is wrong. He usually knows that it's wrong. The understanding that he lacks is a different uh, sort of understanding. Mm. All right. So habits trained, habits trained towards goodness. Yeah. And so, so, so some of this comes from the, the use of the muses in education, right? If, um, if you, so for example, if when they wanted to get rid of, you know, say, um, inappropriate dancing in the church in the fifties and the sixties, they did it by getting rid of dancing. Right. That did not work. Right. <laughs> if you look at the, you, um, I was, I just watched, or I guess it was about a year ago, but watched through the, uh, um, the evolution of hip hop that yeah, they, yeah, you know, they yeah, put yeah. out, I think there are four seasons in Yeah. Well, the newest seasons, they go through the, um, the uh, they they give the history of twerking it was, it was amazing i just couldn't believe that they did the work to show where twerking came, came from, from and how it entered the how it entered the national consciousness as a normal part of dancing cuz it's not right <laughs> twerking should not be a normal dance move that's just like a part of the repertoire right it's an it's an um the, the not in public right it's an it's an inappropriate use of the uh um the the hip bone the, the hip joint <laughs> in, in public. public uh i see what you're doing there i see what you're right? doing there so there's a use for that hip joint, right, and that movement, but it's but the but the public spaces is not where the the right. use of that. It has a real teleology, it, right? It has a real telos. It does, right? Um, and but they 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 basically go in and they show how you had these southern, um, uh, what was it called, southern dirty rap? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, it was it's outside of my i mean i i know a lot of hip-hop but mine is generally that brooklyn new york northeast hip-hop and then the g-funk 
um, Southern hip. So I, I just not as familiar with the Atlanta, um, Mississippi. The, and so, and there's some good stuff that came out of there, but what was they name? talked uncle, about uncle Brown, uncle something. Yeah. yeah. Well, so they talk about these, these underground hip hop, uh, shows where they would go hire strippers yeah. to yeah. be their dancers. Right. Yep. And that, so uncle Luke, the, that's then, what it was. Luke. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and so twerking comes in through these guys and then, um, and, and then they, they're interviewing all these women that are now in their fifties and their sixties, um, about what it was like at the time. And they were like, look, if you wanted to get a guy, you had to learn the dance moves and twerking was one of the dance moves. And so, um, uh, you couldn't get a guy's attention because they were, they were normalizing stripper dancing. Right. And so all of the normal girls said, Had to learn how to am I ever like going to end wow. up? I got to learn how to dance. And so they're, and, and they're just telling the story that the, the journalism is really good as, as how I would put it. Right. It's um, the, and it, but it's sad to hear these women talk about how the, you know, the normal way of getting a guy is completely disrupted by the misuse uh, by an art form that is taking advantage of women, you know, basically like you used to be called something different. If you paid a woman to take her clothes off right, right. now, you just call it like director or producer or, you know, um, stage right. manager, right? right? Like all of a sudden you've got, and, and what it did was force the normal good women out of the running. Um, yeah, right. and, and it, so it, it trained men also in a different fashion. It, it trained, yeah, right. It it in um it so it it normal. I would say it normalized perversion. Yeah. Um, it normalized the misuse of a woman, um, and the you you didn't really have. I mean, you didn't have that in the. 50s and the 60s it was if it happened everybody knew well you need to keep it behind closed doors right yeah. so it's not that there weren't strip clubs that they well, we were ashamed that they were there yeah culturally after, speaking right? after you went through the speakeasy there was two more floors below that that you would go for that right <laughs> right yeah yeah exactly right. um and so because because it, it, it's not like you'd look back and say, Oh, that this never, this wasn't there. This didn't happen. Whatever. But it was something that we were ashamed of that something that pirates did, you know? Um, and we, you know, I was just out in Texas somewhere and Marcus and I were driving to our point. No, it was Southern California. We we're driving to a, an appointment and it was this weird, we're driving to our hotel. And then all of a sudden you go through this really bad part of town and then you go back into the nice part of town. I thought that's weird, right in the in between two nice parts of town. But in there was where they had the strip clubs, they had the porn shops, right? They had, yeah. and it they you don't put those in the nice part of town, right? It's um, and it's just I think it was in Texas actually, right? The, those are things that you that if they happen, we should be ashamed of them. Well, what happened was the church saw all that ha that going on and said. No more dancing. We've solved there. We'll solve the problem. The problem is it didn't solve the problem. It inflamed the problem partly because it's trying to do it by works and not by faith, but also because you can't put off 
the misuse of something without putting on the proper use of something, right? You can't put off sin without putting on Christ. You can't put off the old man without putting on the new man. So what we should have done is said, what, what is dance for? Mm. How, what's the right use of dance? How do we desexualize dance so that we can use dance for what it's intended to do, which is for celebration and for you know, young men and women to learn how to treat one another in the proper way, right? Dance has a, a teleology as an art form, and it was used that way for a lot of years. And then to say no dancing is a way of guaranteeing that the only use of dance is going to be its improper use. And that's what we've, that's what we've seen, right? So um, the we and so instead of saying, how do we train the habits of young men and young women to not think of their neighbor as um, – primarily a sexual object mm. through the art form of dance right because that because it does that well we've instead said we're going to leave the dancing to the secret dark rooms <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's something it's never going to stay put well it's something to that too because i'm watching my boys they're learning to dance and they're learning to dance in such a way that they treat the woman in the reality of her frame Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're protective when they dance. They learn to lead. Right. Um, yep. They learn how to honor her as a woman. All these things there. Um, and they learn too, not how to be. They learn some of the. Um, I, I've seen this being out here, too, but some of the oddness of being able to communicate with the opposite sex because you really don't know them and they're not your sister. And this is weird and um, go, kind of it alleviates that and kind of puts a pin in it because you're like, oh, this is who she, this is what she is. This is what she's for. This is how right. I communicate to this other being. Right. And dance is a way of learning how to do that in a proper format so that you have the right type of honor for the glory that that person should bear. Right. Right. I mean, we, we, you know, one of the thing, one of the reasons that um, I like going to a liturgical church is because when you bring in a visitor who doesn't know how to worship or pray or doesn't know what he's supposed to do, um, you just hand them, here's the liturgy, right? You don't have to know how to pray beforehand. We're going to teach you, right? Come in. Here's the, at this point, you say these words, right? We're, we're discipling the nations in how to worship God by bringing them in. And the liturgy is one of the tools. No, Jason, people, well, dance. just people in the nation, just people in, not the nations. Okay. <laughs> just those people that are in those. nations. Yeah. Let's <laughs> we get get, you're going to trigger me about linguistics. And it's gonna... Are you saying these but... people are not literate, Jason? Is that what you're trying to say? I'm saying that dance is a social liturgy that trains young men and young women how to treat one another according to their nature. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, 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 what, that's what it that It is doing that. It is a social liturgy. So if we're not, um, if we're not teaching and learning how to dance the way we should, then somebody else will be teaching the social liturgy to our kids. Uh, because the dance is the social liturgy um, in concentrated form. And, and that doesn't mean like you got to get rid of 
all of the dances that there are, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the bit, that's one of the best things that break dancing does, right? Tap. I think it, it does. It was the thing that did it well before, but it teaches men how to dance together. Right. Right. It teaches men how to dance in non-sexual ways. It teaches men how to dance in strength. Right. And, and the, um, uh, it teaches men how to deal with conflict in ways other than violence because men are always going to be tempted to that. Right. But break dancing um, is, is an incredibly important art form for young men um, in, in any sort of respect based culture. And, you know, in um, tap dancing used to be the same thing. Um, and, and this is why it's a problem when a, a woman comes in and, breakdance is exactly like a man there's feminine ways to breakdance but it right. sh- they shouldn't dance exactly the same that that leveling um it ends up ruining breakdancing honestly um right so un- unfortunately but it's uh swing dancing um, can do that well ballroom dancing can do that well uh line Latin dancing. dancing i'm line dancing um i know for electric slide yeah yeah right line um line, line dancing, dancing country dancing all of the dance all any dance that is um you know not bumping and grinding uh, you know and is it has those those embedded social liturgies and i know like uh um i that we was when shakira was in the was it this last year that she was in the super bowl or two two years ago or and everybody was complaining about um, not everybody, but there were some people complaining about Shakira, and I was like, "You just—that's just all of that is Latin. All, all of that is a part of the liturgy of Latin dance, but she's doing it without a partner because the partner is the audience, right? And and that's the and so you've got so um, if you're going to criticize, you should at least know the the what you're criticizing, um." I mean, I, I love Shakira, honestly. <laughs> she's one of my, she's, I love her, the, the music and the, the, the Latin, um, the drumming and all, all of that. But uh, the, to say to the, she, the most of the criticisms just didn't understand what she was doing where they're like, what's she doing? Like wiggling her tongue. And you know, like, well, that's, she's, it's, it's part of the beginning of, when um, it's the it's the equivalent of like a yeehaw at the beginning of a country dance, right? People are excited at starting, and they they say yeehaw, and they jump out on the dance floor, and right, um, you've got these all because in any sort of traditional dance, there's a social liturgy embedded and involved that that usually is there for our good. Now, most of the social liturgies of the world have melted down in the last 40 years you know, i will say this you know i would just want to sanctify some of that secure stuff i'm just saying it absolutely yeah, absolutely no that's you know, that, that's what i'm saying it's like yeah. so you um if if I, I don't some of that some of the dance liturgy when you separate it out from a man and a woman dancing together and it becomes an audience and a performer i, I think well you it's that's not the right use of that Oh, of those dance okay. moves, okay. right? Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying, right? Is is the the social liturgy is designed for one man and one woman dancing together, right? And um, a lot of the dance moves, when you take them 
out and you put all of the people in a line dancing in front of an audience, that because that's the problem with it. You become like Not Uncle Luke and those moves. guys. You'll use, but some right. of it can look exactly. like you hired a stripper. <laughs> exactly, that's the problem, right? Is is the 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 um, it, it's the equivalent of what Jesus says about the guy that goes out and stands on the street corner and gives the long prayer, right? Well, that that's not the right you're um or the people saying hey jesus you got to wash your hands before you eat and he says well that those are parts of the liturgy of the temple you don't do those on the street corner you don't do right there's a place for that but you're misusing the yeah, thing t- yeah. um and a lot of a, a lot of dance moves that make perfect sense in a Latin dance between a man and a woman cease to make sense when you put everybody in a line and they face an audience and they're dancing in front of an audience because you can't make love to a thousand people at a time. Mm. Right. You, that, that's the right. That and, and I think, I mean, I think TikTok is destroying dance. It's just, drives me nuts because everybody dances facing the same direction and they're and okay so here's a question then but should should our should our dancing since we're here since should our dancing our public dancing look like a couple making love depends on the situation right so um, Interesting. this this is yeah so this is where um you the uh, uh this is w- one of the benefits of of the traditions of dance is you've got a lot of different traditions of dance for different situations we want to we want to universalize everything and and put it all into so like okay so swing I, dancing okay is really great for young people that are learning to flirt well <laughs> right because right because right, that's a, right, it's a right. skill that you that you take into marriage with you right you need to it's an important it's an important social skill and teenagers are bad at it but a lot of the, the, the liturgies of swing dance are ways to teach you to, to flirt properly, right? To teach you how to interact with the opposite sex um, in a non-sexual way. Right. Right. It, where I'm not um, the, the, which is what, it, that's kind of the, the it, it does that really well. Um, so, we should, I think we should use it for that, you know, for that end. Right. Um, it just like, you know, um, line dancing is, is a great way to, for a whole group of people to have fun together, you know, right. It, there, there's sure. A, I get um, the line, that line dancing and stuff. That's, that's down. That don't bother me so much, but I don't think the dude get to do the cha-cha <laughs> with my daughter until he put a ring on it. You know what I'm saying? I, yeah, <laughs> I totally get it. Yeah. I just, there's, so there's a, but but that's the that's that's the thing is the the church has always our temptation, uh, the modern church's temptation because of the Gnosticism is mm. we want to universalize a single, uh, a single thing as the right thing always. So right rather than live live our lives as a story in which there are different chapters and different times and different the thing, know, and okay. different things are appropriate in different ways. So the, times and places you know, and behind closed doors and, and not sure. behind closed doors, right? All of those things. So then it goes back to kind of what you were saying earlier. You need to understand really the intent behind it. Those four, those four causes work those through, be able to apply them to um, the nine muses. Right. So, so, so there is some, 
there is ballet and a certain form of beauty that's there that everybody gets. And I think it's because of the elegance that we see of it, right? The, the technicality. Mm-hmm. And yet some of the, some of the most ballet can be some of the most intimate looking pieces that were like, whoa, that's all right, kids, this is. Um, but because of his presentation, it doesn't come off as raunchy, right? Right, and that, and I think that's where, like, a ballet is a good example. It's an art form designed to be danced in front of an audience, right? Um, whereas salsa is not. It's salsa is a, is a is a dance form that's designed to be danced between a man and a woman, not between an a woman in an audience or a man in an audience. I see. But ballet is right. So ballet hula is, a, is similar. It's a storytelling art form. It's a storytelling dance. Um, salsa is not a storytelling dance. Ballet hula. I, I was a part of the hula team um, in college. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful storytelling art form designed for dancers to dance to an audience. Right. And so the, the, um, and if you know how to, I mean, if you know how to interpret it, it it's actually, you can tell really complex stories through the, the art form. Um, but it's, um, we, we want to say what's the, what's the, what's the single use of dance. Interesting. Right. And we ignore it as an art form. Is I that, am I making sense? No, no, no. It's coming sometimes together. I'm, yeah. I think this last, that last time I feel like I've, thought through some of these things too deeply <laughs> no I, well well it's starting to make me feel like i don't think we've thought through them deeply enough i know dance is important we it's some that we encourage you know um it happens in our house spontaneously you know and i'll grab mm-hmm. my daughters we'll start dancing i'll force them to dance with me even when they don't want to or whatever you know those are um um encouraged but i don't think we've thought about that there's different types of dance for different moments and different in, engagements and that we should look forward to those um, it just like there's different types of relationships between two people that grow and expound and they have different forms of intimacy. And so we don't think about it as broadly and we say, oh, there's no dance and we push it out. And then right. we're wondering, but why yeah, do I want to move? That, that, feels e- <laughs> that feels easier in the moment. I mean, it feels easier in the moment to say, ah, no, we're just not going to dance because I think it's going to be hard to recover dance. Right. I think it's going to be hard. It's going to be a multi-generational, a difficult project. Um, it's going to take, and we're going to make some mistakes, you know, but it, um, because, but it's because we walked away from it, right. As an art form, um, as a, and as a social, as a social art form. I mean, that's, it's, it's one of the few art forms that when it's done well, you could, you can, it's like, um, Congregational singing, I think, is something similar. Yes. Right. Because everybody's grown up awkward about their own voice. Be, you know, G.K. Chesterton says that in modernism, we leave dance and, and singing to the professionals. And he says it's the worst thing about the modern world. Mm. Um, but folk music what, um, is designed for everybody to sing together. Right. Um, congregational music uh, is designed for that same reason we used to be that and there's still places where it is um i just saw i think it was in brazil where there's an entire grocery store everybody was shopping and the whole place was singing the same song song. yeah yeah and and you think that doesn't happen in 
America. <laughs> That's not true, <laughs> right? I, I, I gotta, I gotta challenge that. It, it, I was just when I saw it in Brazil, it made me think about. You go look at some of the historical black colleges. You go to those places, and they will bust out. In an old yeah. church song, and somebody will say, you know, God is good, and everybody knows the response all the time, and all the time, guys. And, and ain't nobody told them. And so those prompts are, they're very cultural, I think, in a lot of ways. And I can go into most, um, they've changed now, but I used to be able to go into most black churches and know the liturgy of the songs they were going to sing and would never have to look at a piece of paper or a pad. I could just close my eyes and raise my hands and I knew all the liturgy, you know, and how it was going to go. Or, you know, uh, yeah, so I, I think you could, I think that still exists. People don't, they don't know where to look to find those kind of things anymore, but that's um, still common. It, well, and I think maybe that one won't be as hard to recover too. I hope not. Um, oh, I hope not. But you I know, mean, go, I was at a I was at a con at a concert for um, Mumford and Sons back twenty. I don't know, twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, something like that. And at the end, everybody's everybody's singing along, and then they bring out everybody and. Um, all of the bands that had opened for them as well. And they sang, um, just came into Nazareth, just came into Nazareth. Something. Yeah. Every, and it's a song everybody knows. And so the whole crowd is singing along and you can tell when it ends, most people are not used to the sort of liturgical unity that comes with. It's, congregational odd. Singing. it's like, what do we do? They, and the lights go on and spontaneously a Beatles song breaks out the whole and everybody stays for one more the the band is gone the lights are on there's nobody on stage the the guys are up there packing the drums and the the crowd doesn't leave they stay and sing one more song together because the unity the artist the artistic the 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 liturgical unity I don't know what, what else to call it the musical unity was such that people weren't ready to leave I I've seen this before. The, yeah. Yeah, I mean if churches were like that, um that'd be a big blessing to the to our nation. I was working there'd be a place to go to experience one of the things that we were created to have, which is that sort of musical unit. I mean it's it's a metaphor that Paul uses to talk about the people of God. Are we a people that live in harmony or not? Right? I mean it's it's a he uses that metaphor to talk about the, the life of the church. All right. So what else do you have on there? Cause so I, I, I do want to, I know you have other things on your list, right? Well, I mean, just, I think the great conversation is something that I, we don't understand anymore. And I think is important. When you say the great conversation, what do you mean by that? The great conversation of just, liberal arts, or you, what are you talking about? Yeah, the great, the great, the the liberal arts is sort of the summary of the of the aspects of the great conversation, but it's it's that throughout history, mankind has had certain things that they, as as a race, are trying to come to know and understand and be able to describe about reality, um, and. God didn't just give us a philosophy textbook in the Bible that says, let me answer all these questions for you. 
um, but has given, but there are certain things that the human race has sought after and historically um, has been in this long conversation from generation to generation to generation. And that has been one of the most civilizing, um, the one of the most civilizing aspects of education is when, so um, it, it's, it's the one time that there was fundamental peace between um, Islam and the West was uh, when they both realized that um, that talking about Aristotle was going to be helpful. <laughs> right? So when, when the West realized, oh my gosh, they've got the works of Aristotle over there. Um, and we're trying to, we've been trying to solve this problem of metaphysics so you started, you had Christians, um, you had a Christian Muslim library and professor exchanges in the 1000s, like late 900s, early 1000s, um, because the, the Roman, the Bishop of Rome at the time, the Archbishop of Rome at the time said, um, he, he uh, sent Christian scholars down to go make copies at Islamic libraries of the works of Aristotle, as well as a bunch of the astronomical and mathematical works. This is how, this is why we have, we use Arabic numerals and not Roman numerals anymore was because the African mathematicians um, that were speaking Arabic and working in the, with, with Arabic numerals um, got ha- we sent our best mathematicians down to study math with them because math is a universal human um, pursuit, mathematics and the usefulness of mathematics. Um, And that conversation, we realized there was a conversation partner that could help move us forward. And so we, um, we, and we still to this day use Arabic numerals because the, um, the Roman Bishop, uh, said, hey, there's some really good mathematicians down there. I'm going to send you mathematicians, you Christian mathematicians down there to go learn what you can and teach what you know. Um, and uh, and then they said, well, they came back and said, they've got Aristotle too. And so they said, okay, let's, we need to have a library exchange. Um, and it, the, we, they ended up planting Christian churches in, behind behind Muslim lines and we were allowed to because we brought our books, they brought their books and they, and they realized how good of an, how important of an exchange it would be. The, that great conversation that has, has had a civilizing effect. And when we get away from it, there's more war, right? There's, there's less war, more peace when we remember the importance of the great conversation. So Christian, modern Christians don't have categories for even the importance of it. Well, I guess part of the question is what does that great conversation look like? So. um, So, I mean, I think the best way is to just have like a, to just describe one of the, um, like something from the great conversation. So like, um, you know, we talked a little bit about math. So with like with geometry, um, arithmetic, you, it starts, um, you've got numbers, right? Everybody's got numbers. Um, 
it, with, but it's usually embedded within their your language, right? So um, Roman numerals are the ones that most people are most familiar with where I is one, I, I is two, right? So you've got um, I, 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 and then I, I, V is four, right? So um, you've got letters used as numbers, um, but there's still numerical theory being developed and mathematical theory being developed. And so guys, um, you know, guys, uh, there's, you, there wasn't really a difference yet between philosophers and mathematicians. So um, if you read like the Timaeus, uh, Plato is doing a bunch of math or Socrates is doing a bunch of math in there and doing and describing geometry. And um, well, you've got math, uh, math theory going on in other places as well. And when mathematicians meet one another or discover one another's books, new books get written comparing the two mathematical theories and a new theory uh, or the theory is moved forward and mathematical knowledge moves forward in conversation between different mathematicians. Um, That as that progresses uh, and broadens because of Christendom, right? um, Christendom makes it possible for German mathematicians, English mathematicians, Italian mathematicians, and African mathematicians to all work together on math problems. And you, but some of it comes through the ability to communicate, and then, uh, but uh, partly it's we're no longer seen as rivals, right? So you've got a so a Christian mathematician in Africa and a Christian mathematician in Germany, um, because they're both Christians, they can work in you in latin usually in the middle ages um, they also speak the same language because of the because of the spread of the liturgy in latin they speak the same language so they can have conversations through letters or, um, or across generations through books um, that move math forward so we so that you end up knowing more about math because of the geometric proofs of a, a greek um, and uh, the geometric proofs of, say, a Frenchman um, you, uh, interacting with one another. So that's the great, the great conversation around a, a series of different subjects, um, grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, music, um, and then the natural sciences, the moral sciences, and the divine sciences. Those are the kind of the basic um, the basic great conversations that have been going on. Um, philosophy is the only one where you can still find people, you know, people having the great conversations. Most of the time, if somebody studies physics, they don't study the history of physics. They don't study the history of the development of science. They just study the current theories of science. Um, but that's why science doesn't move forward like it used to. Right, because we don't think of it in terms of the the great conversation of mankind, um, uh, but you know, technology moves forward that way. It's um, it's just a shorter conversation. Uh, well, can I can I can I posit something here? What yeah. about what the World Economic Forum is doing? Is that not a form of the great conversation that they're having there? It's just horribly I tilted, think- but it's happening. I, I I do think that what the, that they're trying 
they're that's what they're trying to do. I think they're actually outside of the historic conversation, though. Um, the same way, like the Nazis decided to leave the great conversation, um, he, and um, because the uh, central a central doctrinal understanding of the great conversation is the unity of mankind via the image of God, right? So the human that that humanism so is atheism um, can't have this conversation ultimately we can have it with them but they can't have it with us so um so for example um so nietzsche he nietzsche was the door out of the great conversation for the german people um and it's because he said that it's no longer all of humanity seeking the knowledge of God and the, uh, and the knowledge of how to live well in the world God made, which would be the summary of the great conversation. Who is God? Who are we? And how do we live well in the world? God, I'm sorry. Did you say something about um, confession of faith and the larger catechism? Did you say something about studying that? I I think that you said something about that. That, that, so you, you have the, the confessionalism era is, the reason that you get all of the confessions in the particular languages is because they say, how do we bring this great conversation, the theological conversation to the people, right? Catechisms and confession is, uh, is one of the ways of doing that. Or catechism is the way of doing that. Confession is the way of setting the bounds of a national church, really. Um, and which is, I think was an important project, uh, is a good thing to do. Wait, so why do um, but why do Baptists then have a confession if that's what confession does? Because nationalism divided the church. Because <laughs> it turned out nationalism wasn't a good idea. So wait, are you, but that's, that's, that's a whole different conversation. Okay, all right, all right. Because I'm trying to say so because. So, yeah. So nationalism was a way of trying to was another way out of the great conversation. Right. Um, Which is Nietzsche makes sense. Was a so German nationalism, Nietzsche was a nationalist. So it's a way of saying it's us versus them at the national level. So um, that's the there was an economic theory, mercantilism yeah, that was developed yeah. at the same time. Right? Really? It's us versus them between the nations. So the nations then become the, the category. So instead of humanity as the category, uh, it's nation versus nation. And a central part of mercantilism is there's a limited number of resources. It's a limited yep. amount yep. of resources. There's limited wealth and whatever nation has more, um, that means other, na- other nations have to have less. Right? And so nationalism develops in the midst of that mercantilist, which is I can't, really I, just national socialism in advance well, yeah, before it becomes named that. It's funny because as Go you're ahead. saying this, I'm thinking, you know, when you start having theological breakdowns and you start putting pr- your primary identity into your nation, which is what nationalism does, then you can expect that the taxation will follow immediately because what you start getting with mercantilism is like we're only promoting us. We're not blessing right. anybody yeah. else. We ain't blessing no one yeah. else. You understand? And we'll, we'll make uh, a treaty first. with you so long as we get ours. Right. right? And it penalizes um, blessing other folks. Right? That's what yeah. mercantilism and does. It does. And that's the... Um, so the the 
Christendom had a, an understanding of layered jurisdictions that made it possible to have a great conversation with people that were different than you. And um, because if they succeeded, it didn't mean you that they had to take it from somebody else. So, yeah. So, Jason, this goes back into education. Do you think that the guys that were taught that I, I when we're talking about Christian nationalism, I know these guys. I know they don't believe that. Right. I, I, I don't think they know where they are in the great conversation. I, I think that's the that's the problem because nationalism, it, it had a meaning before they, the that word had a meaning before they picked it up. But they aren't you using mean before it. it was given to them. <laughs> yes. Before it was became the accusation. Uh-huh. So it's oh, but so the World Economic Forum, I think, is an attempt at a secular Christendom. Yes. Right. That's absolutely. That says that here's that here's our internationalism. Well, but so is two kingdom theology. (laughs) Sorry, I said that. (laughs) What you had in the in uh, under Christendom is ecclesiastical man was our in the international version of ourselves, right? And then I could also have my submission to my particular. Lord, the particular authority that had responsibility for me, he had responsibility for me. And so I ceded power to him because he needed the authority to be able to take to, to accomplish his responsibility over me. Right. So a Lord, um, I, I paid taxes to him and I ceded uh, respect to him because he was responsible to protect me. He was the one that ran the army that protected me. Right. And so because he had that responsibility or because, yeah, because he had that responsibility, I also ceded him that authority. Um, it goes back to but, what we talked about earlier. Yeah, so good. It, it does. Yeah. But the ecclesiastical man was an international, international version of me. Right. I was I had an international I was a part of an international jurisdiction, the universal church. Right. The universal yep. church over all, yep. all, all the world that that didn't it didn't disrespect national boundaries but it didn't care about them it didn't they have any they it, it didn't have any right there were national boundaries that did not apply and so that's why you can have you can be you can be in england and have a, an african pastor you can be in germany and have a french pastor uh you you can be in you know japan and have uh and have an english pastor and um and be in you know, in California and have a Korean pastor and nobody bats an eye or they shouldn't bat an eye. Right. Cause it's an ecclesiastical, the ecclesiastical institution is, is a international um, institution, right? It's, it's the, universal. the yeah. it's the world, it's the world economic forum, but it's, but it's really the world ecclesiastical forum because economics is not the sum of who I am, but then the economic life was given to the family, right? So nationalism takes, the historically nationalism took the universal humanity uh, away from the individual. And then it took the economics away from the family and said, both of those things are going to be taken care of by the nation. The nation will give you your identity rather than Christ and the, and his church giving you your, your identity through baptism right now, your citizenship gives you your identity and the, economics is no longer under the purview and the authority and the jurisdiction of the family. It's going to be under the purview and the jurisdiction of the, 
state via mercantilism, right? Through the treaties that it sets and the oh, imports and exports, right? Okay. So, so, so that's my problem with nationalism is it was the way out of the great conversation for most of the nations into a cul-de-sac that has turned out to be incredibly violent and incredibly destructive to the historic cultures um, of mankind, which were protected uh, in Christendom. So when we talk about mercantilism, it adds another layer to this because of the way that people talk about a nation seeking after its own interests. um, The part of that I resonate with, except for me, I break down that reality if an individual person wants to buy a car from China, buy your car from China, the state has it's not unless there's something harm going harmful going on in it. It doesn't the state should not be able to tax it. They shouldn't be able to, over, you know, right. They have no reason to have a uh, uh, and be involved in a pr- transaction between another individual and another country. Right. Unless right. there is some sort of way they can prove real harm here. And so yeah. if they can't. Or- or the if they are upholding the avenues of trade by their and they and they need to tax it to pay for the way that they're protecting and upholding the avenues of trade, right? So it so this would be like if I'm if, fine with if that. We, I, yeah, I can so argue the, that this is that's these are nor, the normal justifications of taxation. I'm I know there is people that are like all taxation is theft, but there are normal justifications for taxation. The Bible had it, right? And so you might that there you might make an argument that um, that import and export taxes because pay for the avenues of trade through the security uh, the security provided by the navy right yes. something like that I, I but right. th- but so, that's not mercantilism though it's not mercantilism right because mercantilism fundamentally first assumes the limited wealth that um, that is and the nations are rivals for that limited wealth yeah if you're saying that because we have people who protect the border and that protection costs something which we all pay and contribute to yeah. uh, so that we can keep people safe we do a security check on all the items that come back and forth right. between us and if it doesn't bother security then sure here you go but it does have a cost right. to it all right it's very minimum i don't have a problem with that reality i can argue yeah. that's a justified tax right and and that borders should be protected like i believe that too. Oh, of course yeah but i <laughs> so, assume that be, opposing <laughs> nationalism doesn't mean that the nation doesn't have a jurisdiction that it and and its job is to provide security and safety for the families to be to have an economic life that they control but <laughs> this goes back to but mercantilism directly controls the individual's economy by mm-hmm. saying who they can and can't do business with and it puts its hand on the scale to control that and that i think will have to be inherent inside of a nationalistic type of world right you can't get away from if you're thinking of historical I, I don't nationalism think you can. yeah historical nationalism now that's the here's the thing it if a new thing is birthed out of nationalism that is not the it, that is an, an that solves these problems i'm I think there are problems that if you can solve, I, it's not the word nationalism right. in and of itself, right? It's that there is a historic problem with nationalism that I don't see any of the current. Because I, I think a Christian can say, I believe nationalism is um, is the best move forward, right? That, that, that And they can make that argument. Um, and But my question is always going to be, 
are you aware of the ways nationalism went wrong, what it destroyed, why it came into being in your mind, why it came into being, right? All those things. And if they say, yes, I get it. Here's why. And here's why I think we can move the conversation and the economic prosperity of families forward that we can restore layered jurisdictions, right? All all of the things that, um, then I'm, because it's not nationalism. It's not a boogeyman that I'm yeah, worried about. Right, right, right. I, it, it's that the conversations seem um, shallow and uninformed historically. If nationalism had a very strong theonomic foundation in it, I think I would be way more interested because it would be its limitations uh, but, on it. Now, this is not. Uh, you, you have helped me understand what you mean by theonomy, right, but right. I've seen the same problem in theonomic conversations that they are unaware of the conversation that they're in often historically as well. Historically. So, um, well, okay. Can I, but I want to push, but, back on you, real but quick. you've put me on like some of the books that you've given me though, like, like Gary, Gary North was not, he knew exactly he was informed right he was literate he knew exactly where he was in the conversation and was balanced and interacted well with with all of that right so so i um so you have pointed me to a number of resources and i've thought oh yeah now if this is what people meant by theonomy that'd be be in a different place but we'd be in a different place but it hasn't but um but it's it i have seen often um, that the heart of folks excited about theonomy is not um, well informed. I'll I'll grant that. Yeah, no, yeah. but I, I, so the theonomists almost like Calvinists follow the same trajectory. They need to be caged for a little bit with a lot of books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and most of them have read one book and haven't done enough research throughout. I mean, so. I, I always tell people the kind of the theonomist I am is Rush Dooney, Gary North, um, Doug Wilson, right? Those are the, because I think that yeah. the foundation, I don't know well, anybody who, huh, who's. Yeah. Well, I read, so. Um, Boston's good. Maybe these are not, but that's not categories, but, but like we read um, in seminary, we read theonomy and Christian ethics by Bonson. Yeah. And it was really good. I thought, I thought it was really good. We read uh, Poitras, um finding Christ. Mm-hmm. In the law, yeah, he's not a theonomist, really, but it's a good book. It, oh, okay, he, yeah, he's not. A, I, I in my mind, he was in the same category. Yeah. No, but he comes across that way absolutely, but I don't think he's a theonomist. Yeah, I mean, in that, it, okay, but I mean, in that book, it's it's a digging into the law to understand who Christ is and how we follow him. Right. So right. It, so in my mind, that puts him in a theonomic category because the law has a positive use. Yeah, I think he does. Like a, a continued positive use for the for the because isn't that kind of the separation is theonomists want to say there's a continued use of the law, um, and not just a condemnational use of the law. Sure, I think that's valid. Yeah, I think that's valid. Okay. Um, there are wooden theonomists that are right. Don't move. Um, then you got general equity theonomists, and I think um, Dooney, Rush Dooney, and North are in those camps. And then you have disagreement amongst them about what that looks like. But it's just 
all we're working out is the same thing the founding fathers were working out about what it looked like to be uh, people who were free under the liberty of God, right? That, that, so I don't have a right. problem with right. those guys, right? They'll, they'll, we can get together. But Rush Dooney and Gary North, particularly, I don't know anybody who has the body of work that they do exegetically through the books of the Bible, working out how general equity looks. I don't know anybody with right. a library as deep. Um, uh, Kaiser, maybe? I don't know. Does he, he might have, I don't yeah. know, but books. I mean, these yeah, guys have tomes. And I, and I haven't read as much Rush Dooney. I, I, he'd be interesting to dive into. Um, the, I've read a bunch over this last couple of years of North's economic commentaries on the, uh, and those are so helpful because you don't realize how often, because he doesn't, he doesn't address every passage because not every passage is about economics, right? But when it does, he addresses it, right? And I, and that is useful in and of itself. But then, um, the number of times that you just don't notice the economic question being, being answered asked. by a <laughs> passage answer, yeah. is so helpful. Yeah. So well, so and- I, I and and I and I I am not convinced in terms of you know he he was a big like gold yeah I, yeah um gold and you know a, a lot of those things i'm not convinced by but i don't know but reading it i was like man this is a this feels like he is actually moving the conversation of economics the great conversation about around economics forward when most people are not well and i think <laughs> right. it's because those two guys and I'll put and the reason I'm going to put Doug in here is because I'll say why in just a second but those two guys were talking about the great conversation they they had a handle yeah. on the great conversation where we currently were in America what was breaking down and if we're going to have uh the type of country that we want moving forward we're going to have to have this type of reality and so I think yeah. that what I see in north particularly in Rush Dooney as well both of them where this it came from here. This is what was before us. This is they had a lot of that. Uh, Rush Dooney spends more time historically than I think even right. Gary North does. Gary North spends most of his time exegetically um, working through the text and from the text showing the reality. Like if you are ever concerned about, well, what do you do with the commandments and how do they apply to biblical law? And are we going to start stoning, um, you know, uh, kids because they and it's just like these are so infantile. Anybody who I'm, I'm let me just say this out right now. Anybody who is asking the question about informing the law of God or implementing the law of God in a civil magistrate is infantile in their understanding. If they have to ask those questions, I mean, it's just a, such an infantile understanding. It's it's so infantile. It drives me nuts. You know, um, it's not something that hasn't been answered. And if not God's law. Who's right. And I think th- those are the things that because they're a part of that great conversation, they realize that you, that isn't, it isn't possible to have an empty, an empty um, spot for our lawgiver. Right. Right. Because of what laws do that because of what laws do. Right. So, and that's just being a part of the great conversation, the realization that, um, the early church was, you know, had to have this conversation, but also the old Testament saints had this conversation. It's not if there's going to be a God at the heart of a society, it's which God, right. Um, you, you, that, that you're deciding between the gods of power 
um, in Egypt right. and the god and the god of of creation, the creative, the creating god or the power god, or the gods of Egypt are power gods. The God of the Hebrews was the creator God. He was the gift-giving God. He's the one who made this mm. place and gave it to us. He's the life-giving God. That So you the realization that it is always a question of which, not whether, when it comes to who, who sits in the seat that gives laws, who sits in the seat that gives righteousness, who sits in the seat that holds all things together, right? We're always going to be looking for a God that provides that gives uh, provides for us what we have yeah provides for us uh, laws provide and provides for us an identity right so you're always looking for a god to do that i think um, and that's something that they, they point out it. that i that that other people i think were saying well what if we had a purely secular society in which the identity of each individual was provided by themselves and trans <laughs> <laughs> exactly right <laughs> that's if listen. we if if we provide our own identity um or uh, then then uh there's no breaks right, right. and uh, and i think the the great chain of being if the question is the great chain of being is a power a power cosmology um and versus the layered jurisdictions of a uh, of a submission cosmology, submission to reality cosmology, you know, all of those things. Um, I, you Dude, know, man, you're so true. Like, yeah. You're making me think that the questions that, that people are dealing with even around this topic are egalitarian based. I didn't even think about mm-hmm. that. You're right. I got to throw this in here real quick before we end, but I, the, the reason why Doug's important to the conversation with um, North and Rush Dooney is because Doug is the kind of theonomist that sees the, the ecclesiology part really clearly in relationship to the other governments. And he applies it very practically in, um, sorry to say this, but in a Baptistic tongue. And what I mean by that is that the majority of <laughs> the it. culture is Baptistic, right? Yeah. We he, are, st- he, st- he still speaks the lingo. He still speaks. He still got this, the smoke on him. Right. And so people know, Hey, he used to be over cause just cause of the way he talked, they know where he used to come from. And so he has that, the, and he's able to communicate those positions from a, cause everybody's like, I don't want to become this legalistic person that run around here slapping the law on people and then killing people with the Bible, you know, and stoning them with, <laughs> they're like, and, and, and does like, well, let me tell you about the gospel that it has a teleology, right? It actually has right. an end. It actually, and he works from their presuppositions a lot with the gospel and works it out and said, that, but you do know that the gospel has a law to it. The law of love actually looks like something. It's not just squishy. It, it has a demand and this is what it looks right. like. And it had, so, and he's able to work those out and apply them so well that people are like, Oh, that makes way more sense. And he holds those guys together. And so I think you really have to read those guys a lot through kind of uh Doug's lens because he understands the law of God. He understands the anomic position. And then he's able to help you understand them, what they're trying to communicate. And so it's just, I think those three together yeah. create a really good uh, way to understand I, I theonomy. Think, I think the other thing that he brings to the table um, that I haven't seen other places is that he understands that it's the church's job to incubate, um, incubate the new civil yes realm 
right? That you don't look around and say, how do we get them in line? Right. That you say, okay, here's what's expected of us by God. Let's incubate the new, the new civics. Let's incubate the new civil realm right here in our church. So let's talk about justice. Make sure we're doing it. Let's talk yes. about um, taking care of widows and orphans and make sure we're doing it. Let's talk, let's talk about um, the, the, uh, what, what does a properly functioning uh, system of righteousness or of, 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 uh, of, like a properly functioning court system look like, and let's make sure we're doing it right in a way that incubates for the future, a, uh, a, the, the, the civil realm that we're supposed to have, but we don't right now. I think he, he understands that and does that well. Um, And uh, the, there are other guys that I think are doing it and just don't realize they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. They want to, they want to live righteous lives and they want righteous churches and churches that love the Lord and ask for forgiveness and deal, deal well with people and, um, and understand justice and are trying to do that. Uh, They don't realize that they are incubating the future. Yeah, actually, I think some of so, them would say we don't. That's not what we're trying to do. But I don't think that it's. I yeah. think it's inescapable. Thankfully, it doesn't matter, right? Right. You just you follow the Lord, and and uh, he he t- does all that, and he he runs off. Um, I remember somebody. Well, this was actually in my baptism class, um, trying to describe it. Uh, they basically he was saying, "Well, you're so so. Do we?" Somebody asked the question, "Do we get blessings for obeying the Lord?" Mm. And he was like, yes, but they're not proportional blessings. And, and then the person said, well, what do you mean? It's like, imagine if you told your kid, hey, um, go pick up the pine cones in the backyard. And he picked up three out of the 50 that he was supposed to pick up. And then you gave him a new car. That's the kind of out of proportion obedience to blessings that God does. Praise God so, for the Holy spirit. It, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Right. He's saying, you don't, he doesn't say, um, he doesn't say when you get it all right. And then I'll give you exactly in exchange for your obedience. What it is. Right. He's pouring blessings on us. He's pouring blessings on us, pouring blessings on us. And then we do a little bit of what he asks and he pours way out of proportion, the blessings on us beyond what we actually did. They said, because it's not a works based system or, and, and that's, that stuck with me. Right. That was the, that was um, one of the, just the classes in my bat. Now, you know, when I was learning what Christianity was, so I could get baptized that stuck with me since you can even say that he actually is pouring proportional blessing, but on the portion of Christ's blood and not your works. Right. <laughs> right. That's yeah, that's exactly, that's a really good way to put it. And then you turn around and you, he said, then I remember him saying, and then you turn around and you find out that he was actually lifting your hand <laughs> to pick up the pine cone. <laughs> so he's like, right. then you turn around and you have to actually even say thank you for the obedience. Yeah. yeah like, right. You end up, Finding out, you say thank you for all of it at the end of it. That's but right. it's all, and then it's all completely out of proportion. And in, in His grace is so much greater than both of our sin, our sin and our obedience. Man, so. That's so good. Okay, so what's next? What do we talk about next week? Because did you even um, get halfway through the? <laughs> no, not really. But that's okay. I mean, like we got good stuff. Um, I, I mean, we so much we can. Dive so, into so chapter one 
A or B next week. <laughs> one A, yeah. I mean, we didn't even really get to the part where we list that what the liberal arts are. Did we? Maybe we did. Oh, Listed next week we'll get okay. Next week we're listing. Hey, are you um next week. Uh, next week we'll list what the liberal arts are. That'll be chapter one A. <laughs> this is gonna be like a Puritan sermon. <laughs> yeah. Um but I, I'm I'm excited for uh for Nashville partly because um one of the things I want to talk about is how the is the English the the when the English what it looked like for the English to pull the eject cord on the great conversation. So, Oh, all right. I'm, I'm stopping it. Cause we're not talking about that right now. Stopping it right now. Okay. 